0: Please read with me, along with me, from God, from John's Gospel, chapter four, beginning in verse ten. I'm preaching a sermon today in uh, in light of the theme of today. As you got in your uh, mail out this week, each one win one. As we encourage people for uh, in in personal evangelism. By the way, at the end of this service, you'll be given an opportunity to respond publicly with that card and the commitment that it asks of you on it. Now I came down here Tuesday night to do a little late night study and working on this sermon, write it out really. And as I got to writing this sermon, it just kind of uh, it became a series <laughs> all of a sudden. And so many things that I have been wanting to say that have just been kind of building up in me for a long, long time. I started, you know, developing in this as I wrote this sermon. So really what I want to say this morning is more than just to try to um, give exposition of a text, but to share with you what I feel very deeply. And you'll you'll understand that as I go along. And and I won't get through it in one sermon, so you can tell that if you're looking for three points in a poem, and when I get to point two, I'm about to the end of the time. And so read with me verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, that is, this Samaritan woman, which you're familiar, if you knew the gift of God and who it is and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked Him and He would have given you living water. She said to Him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are no greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? And Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up into eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty, underline that thought, nor come all the way here to draw. And he said to her, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You've well said, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you live with now is not your husband. You've you've said this truly. You're right on. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshippers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, am he. I remember my parents telling me about these uh, experiences when they grew up. Uh, you know about their childhood. You, you remember those? How they used to walk to school three miles in knee-deep snow with a bobcat on their back. And and they had this, their lunch pail was a was a, a gallon syrup bucket and, and about the only lunch they had to carry to school was you know like a couple of biscuits with a hole punched in the side filled with syrup. And I remember them telling me that and you know they grew up in the same community way out in the country that they didn't have a church building and they didn't have a preacher. And he said just about once a month somebody would ride into the community on a horse and everybody'd meet down at the school for church and I thought they're complaining about that? You know, just have to go to church once a month, and they're griping. And, and I can remember thinking, you know, where are the preachers? And, and where are the people who are able to share the gospel with people who, who gather together, who want to hear that? Um, now, now, now we've certainly, times have certainly changed there. A whole lot more preachers. And somebody told me not long ago, he said, preachers are a dime a dozen. There are sure a lot more preachers, but we've not seen too much improvement in in the people that are willing to share their faith and to share the message of God's truth, not, not very many more of them now than then. And there's something basically abnormal about that. You know, I don't, somehow I don't see this early church, these early followers of Christ, sending out some farm letter with a little uh, brochure in it to get people to commit to share their faith. I, I just can't see that in the early church. As a matter of fact... You couldn't keep them from sharing their faith. It was as normal as breathing. And they were on the hit list of every Jewish synagogue in the Jewish kingdom. That didn't matter to them. And they were constantly threatened lest they speak too much in the name of the Lord. Now I didn't come this morning to point out the, or to lament the abnormal. What I've come to do is to try to point us toward the normal. And, I, and, I, and the purpose of this sermon this morning is not to identify those people who are not sharing their faith and have no desire to do that. The purpose of this sermon is to try to in, identify those who want to reach out to the lost community and who are saying, is there any way we can come to grips with this matter of evangelical communi- evangelistic communication? And, and, and is, is there anybody who can enable us to be enablers? And are there any models that we can follow that can help us effectively communicate the gospel to people who desperately need it? George Hunter has a little book called The The Contagious Congregation. And in this book he has a chapter on models of effective communication. And he says that, quote, The most effective single model of, of speech persuasion is the model of Aristotle, found in the classic, The Rhetoric of Aristotle. And he makes note in there that Aristotle says that there are three resources for effective speech persuasion that which is found in the message, and that which is found in the messenger, and that which is found in the auditor, that is, the person who listens. Specifically, he said that the resources of effective communication of the gospel is that which is found in the ethos of the messenger, the logos of the message and the pathos of the auditor. So the way he's saying is this, that the way way people are convinced and persuaded to the gospel of Jesus Christ is when they see that this message is believable and trustworthy, and when what they see in the being and in the personality of the messenger is believable and trustworthy, and when the messenger and the message engage them at the level of their deepest motives and needs, then they're persuaded to the gospel. That's what I want to talk about this morning. Before I I get to that, however, I want to spend a little time with a a warning. I want to sound a warning this morning. And I believe this warning is essential and and is relevant in light of the recent scandals in telecommunication and televangelism. This is the warning. That we make sure that what we call effective communication of the gospel to an unbelieving community is not just learning how to have some kind of religious marketing principles. Now watch this carefully. I want us to be sure that when we say, I want to learn how to effectively communicate my faith, we're not saying, can you teach me how to package and and, and, and market my faith so that it's attractive to everybody. And I think we need to be careful within the religious community lest we begin to promote ministry and merchandise it like the world promotes toothpaste and deodorant. Raphael was painting the frescoes in the Vatican. Two cardinals stopped to to, to watch and to criticize. And after a little bit, one of the cardinals said, the face of the Apostle Paul is too red. And Raphael answered quickly, He blushes to see in whose hands the church has fallen. I tell you we ought to blush when we see into whose hands the church has fallen. And it doesn't take a nuclear rocket scientist to know that we are experiencing an integrity crisis within the religious community. And that integrity crisis is due partly to the false success of the modern evangelical movement. And that's a radical statement, but I think it can be supported. John Johnston's statement he made in 1980 is more relevant today than the day he made it when he said, evangelical, the evangelical movement and its desire for popularity prevents, presents powerful pressures to compromise biblical values in order to be socially acceptable. And he says this compromise has reached epidemic proportions. Now this is what he's saying. He's saying that in our desire to be acceptable, to get results, to be successful, we have compromised in the religious community as a whole, biblical values. And it's true. We've got to be successful. And success is to us measured by how many numbers we can count and how much money we can get in. And how popular we are to the world in general and to important people in particular. And there are some implications of that. I'm just sharing my heart with you now. There are some implications of that. One is what Tozer calls the Wheaties approach to evangelism. Now you ask, what is the Wheaties approach to evangelism? Well, just like you ought to eat Wheaties because John Jones does, you ought to be a Christian because John Jones is. And there is something that has concerned me for a long time, and I need to share that with you this morning. It concerns me greatly that the only way we can get a crowd, especially in revivals, is to have some popular figure come and be on the program, some athlete, some movie star. And you can have a preacher that has this profound biblical message with a heart that's beating for God, and he can preach in a revival meeting, and there wouldn't be a hundred people here. But you get some famous personality come, and we pack it out. So that the most important thing is the fame of the person, not his or her faith. And when that happens, this is what is the spin-off, or this is what results. There is this subtle, what I call subtle religious pragmatism. And by that I mean, if it works, you know, do it. If it's working, if it gets results, then God must be blessing it. I mean, after all, it doesn't. if you're catching fish, it doesn't matter what kind of bait or hook you use, does it? As long as we get results. But I also know it's right that there is a vast difference between knowing the number of the sheep and the condition of the flock. Anybody, any carnal person with a personality at all can manufacture results. But fruit is the flow of life. And it is fruit, hear me, First Baptist Church, it is fruit that we're to bear. And when we market our faith like the world markets toothpaste and deodorant, and we do it to get results, we build these monstrosities of competition that ask, who had the biggest Sunday school and who had the biggest church? When all of the time our purpose is to glorify God when we're here. Now all of that is the runway, I'm getting ready to take off. And all of that is, 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 is the introduction to what I want to say about the ethos, the logos, and the pathos that is a part of biblical persuasion. First of all, the logos of the message. Now hear me. Is there anything in this message, in this word that God has entrusted to you that meets man at his deepest need? Is there I mean if God entrusted you with this as a treasure, is it does it speak to man's deepest need? Jesus thought it did. And he talked to this woman and confronted her, and he said, If you knew what I could give you, if you knew what I had to say, then you wouldn't ask, you wouldn't be down here getting a drink of water out of this well. You'd be asking of me for it. For Jesus understood that there was something in this message that meets the deepest needs and engages people at the, mo- at the deepest motives of their life. He knew that. In fact, He said to His disciples, I have meat to eat, I have essential food that you know not of. There's something about this word here that meets man's deepest needs. Do you really believe that? The average man on the street, I believe, thinks that that the word of God, that the message that we have entrusted to us is totally irrelevant to real life. That it has nothing to say to those issues that haunt and hassle man out there where he lives. That's what he thinks. And he thinks that the message that we have is just fine for the little ladies, little church ladies of both sexes, who are interested in little churchy things, but with regard to what really haunts him and hassles him, the average man on the street thinks that it's not really relevant to him. That's what he thinks. But Jesus thought, and you and I think, I hope, I, 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 I trust you believe this, that this gospel, this message is intrinsically involved with the deepest human oneness of man. That's what Carl Barth meant when he said... That communion with God, the gospel is communion with God, and communion with God is not a dash into security. It is a walk toward reality. And the reality that you and I cherish is the reality that God is a personal God who responds to our trust and whose loyalty meets our loyalty. And when we get in the deepest darkness of our life, He is the only power that can deliver and quicken the soul and make it alive. Do we really believe that? Shake your head like that. I got something in the mail here a while back. It was, it was marked fragile on the box. It, I, 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 you know, I, I assumed there's something in there breakable. And I got this box and I opened it up and it was all these little styrofoam peanuts in there, just jam full. You've seen those, haven't you? Now I've seen those guys load those boxes, you know. And I said this morning, you know, I'm not knocking the UPS or the Postal Service. I've been accused of enough stuff this week. I don't need something else. But I've seen some of that stuff handled. Hey, it's fragile. Be sure you catch it. And and that stuff just gets tossed around. And I have an idea that this fragile gift that came to me wrapped up in that, you know, enclosed in those styrofoam peanuts, I'm sure it had been bumped around, kicked around, thrown around a little bit. But it was safe. Hear me well. There is nothing about the biblical gospel that is going to keep you from the from the tosses of life and from the bumps of life nothing about the biblical gospel makes that kind of promise but the promise of the biblical word is that in the midst of the crushing of life you are secured that's the gospel And so you can talk to somebody down the street who is going through literal hell on earth and you're not going to be able to promise him that if he has faith in God, he'll be delivered from that for the rest of his life. But you can promise him that he will be delivered in it. You can do that. And so Arthur Gossip, perhaps the greatest preacher that Scotland has ever known, lost his wife. She died. And after she died, he preached a classic sermon every seminary... Class teaches this sermon with regard to supportive preaching. And the sermon is entitled, When Life Tumbles In, What Then? And Arthur Gossip said he refers to this painting that hangs in the National Gallery of Art in London. And it's the picture of Christ on the cross. And there's this darkness there, shrouding Him at Calvary. And if you look in the detail of that painting, you can see another figure. This looms there in the background. There's another figure there. And the other hands that support Christ, God's. And there's another face, you can see it if you look carefully enough. There's another face that has agony on it, more severe than Christ's own agony God's face. And Arthur Gossip says this there in the darkness of human suffering, the suffering and the sufficiency and the presence of Christ becomes very real and very sure and very valuable. Indeed, it does. There's a second thing about this gospel. Not only can I, do, I, do I need to make it relevant, but it has to be biblical. Now, I'm sure that the average man outside there does not know what the gospel, the biblical message declares and couldn't care less, but he, he is interested in one thing. He is interested in this. What does God say? And specifically, what did Jesus teach? Is it biblical? For I have an I have an idea that folks out there are not the least bit concerned about my personal opinion. But they are concerned about what does God say? What did Jesus say? So that when we meet those people out there, we must have come from an engagement and a dialogue with the Scripture ourselves. For how long are we how in the world are we going to tell these people what Jesus said if we don't know ourselves? You see. Now I know. Theodore Webb once said, "We're to tell them what they what they need to hear, not what they want to hear, and try to make them make them want it." I know that not everybody wants to hear it. Um, I remember the first time I ever confronted somebody who engaged somebody who didn't want to hear my sermon. When I started to preach, 18 years old, all the little church ladies came to hear me preach, practiced out the church, bragged on it. When I took a church, the first church I pastored was uh, there were twelve people there, and they were just glad to get anybody. I didn't care what I said. One day, one of the ladies told me, he "said I'm bringing my husband to church. He said, it's a miracle. He doesn't like church. He doesn't. He hates preachers. He doesn't like preaching. I thought he will like my sermon. Everybody liked liked it when Billy Graham preached it. <laughs> they like it. I mean, it wasn't two minutes in my sermon. I could tell he didn't like it. He's counting out the he's counting the tile on the ceiling. And he's He's checking his watch and he's shooting daggers at his wife, like, How could I let you drag me into this? I mean, he hated it. That'll take a bite out of your ego. I know it's true that not everybody wants to hear the message. But I am convinced that everybody, if he's interested in what we have in the Christian storehouse at all, he's interested in knowing what does God say? What does God say? And I also am aware of the fact that not everybody begins with a perspective that what God says, that the Bible is God's Word. I know that there there are a lot of people who who don't believe that, who don't even come from that perspective. They don't even believe this is God's Word. And you say, well, what about them? Let me tell you something I deeply believe. Listen to me carefully. The important thing, the big question today is not, do the people out there that you talk to believe this is God's Word or not? The, The big question is, do you believe it? Do you believe it? Do you believe that God has entrusted you with His Word? Do you believe that? For if you believe that deeply, and you learn how to communicate that, and you come with a Spirit-filled life to communicate it, that Word itself becomes a sword to edge it. And like Jeremiah said, it's like a hammer and a fire. And Spurgeon said, you don't have to defend the Bible, just turn it loose, it's like a lion, it'll defend itself. It's biblical. It has to be biblical. Well, I come to the last point, and I've got to hurry. And that is the pathos of the auditor. When Jesus engaged this woman, he knew that she had a deep need. Watch this carefully. He knew that she had a thirst that was insatiable. And he knew that this thirst that this woman had was not thirst for water, physical water. It was a thirst that drove her to men, to men. It was a thirst that s- drove her to seek acceptance and love and approval from others. It drove her. She had five husbands and living with a man who wasn't her husband. He knew that there was some, this pathos in this woman called out for some need that was not being fulfilled. He knew that about her. Do you know the people around you well enough to know what are their deepest needs? Let's suppose this morning, you get, get this picture. This lady goes to a gynecologist, and she and her husband are trying to have a, have a family for a long time. And She goes in this gynecologist, and he does an exam, a routine exam. He's done it several times. They've been trying to have a family. He comes in to give her her report. Says, Ms. Jones, you're not, able, you're not just able to have a baby. You're pregnant right now. And she jumps up and screams, and she plants a kiss on this gynecologist, and she runs out in the hall and gets on the telephone and calls her husband at work and says, Honey, guess what? Now, all he's done is that he has just presented a factual message, a factual report, but it touched her at the deepest need of her life. Now, let me ask you this. I need your response. Didn't get any out of the first service. I'll try again. If you knew this morning that that you could go out this afternoon, tonight, tomorrow, and just deliver a factual message and you would get that kind of joyous, spontaneous response, would you share your faith, would you, if you knew you could get a response like that? Sure you would. Let me warn you. Response, the response is not up to you. Somebody asked me one time, said, "What, what happens when you preach your heart out on Sunday morning? And nobody responds. I, say, oh, I've, I said, oh, I have settled that a long time ago. The response is not up to me. But I do believe this sincerely. Hang with me now. Just watch this. I do believe this. That if you engage a person at the deepest level of their need with a gospel of hope and redemption, you'll get that response. I believe that. Now, when I stand to communicate... When I stand or wherever I am to communicate, I have two basic assumptions. I assume that there are people who are hearing me communicate the gospel who feel unworthy. They're unworthy of love. They're unworthy of human love and divine love. That's what this woman felt. That's why she came at lunch. At noontime. They didn't come in the heat of the day, but because she felt so unworthy, she was such an outcast, she came then because nobody was there. And so when I communicate the gospel, I understand that there are a lot of people who, who feel unworthy. You're, you're just like Charlie Brown. and You remember that little Peanuts deal where Charlie Brown is lamenting to his friend Linus about this lifelong feeling of insecurity, and he said, it goes all the way back to the beginning when I was born. He said, when I stepped out on the stage of history, they took one look at me and said, not right for the part. <laughs> Anybody feel like that? <laughs> you, you, were just, you stepped out on the stage of history, and they looked at you and said, not right for the part. And there are some people who feel like that. As far as you're concerned, you're an absolute zero. And there is emptiness. And there are these little voices go off inside of you that say all the time, as, as you are right now, you're unworthy. And if you ever become significant, you're going to have to go somewhere else and import that so that you'll be different than what you are right now. If that's the way you feel, i got good news for you. For as Kierkegaard, the great existentialist, said, the gospel of God is a love letter from God with your personal address on it. Amen to that. You are worthy. You are somebody. You are important. I can engage you at the level of your deepest need. There is a love for you that be, it, it, it outruns man's imagination. And then when I stand to preach, I talk to people who, who feel that they're just all right, just like they are. I mean, I'm all right. That, that most of us are like that. Most of the people, I'm, I'm sad to say this, they're, they're really not out there waiting for you to knock on their door. Really, and say, I wish you to come yesterday. Most of the people that come into this congregation and that you engage in conversation, Christian communication, feel that they have, they're all right just like they are. They're not like the woman at the well. They're like the Pharisees. You are like the Pharisees. And so am I. And those are the hardest people to deal with, aren't they? What do you do with them? Well, the way you, what you do with them is you go straight to the cross. That's what you do with them. Just like Walter K. Ayers, who preached a revival for me. He's a, he, was, he, he led Freddie Akers, the pre, the the coach at starts to say president, the coach the, of the University of Texas, now at Purdue. He, he led Freddie Akers to the Lord. He was Barry Switzer's roommate. That all, you know, if you don't like Freddie, you like Barry. He's he's Barry Switzer's roommate. And Freddie Akers was, was an 18 year old high school I meant Freddie Akers. Walter K. Ayers was an 18 year old high school freshman. Grew up in the backwoods of Arkansas. His parents left him, and he he, he was a 14 year old boy. He had to fend for himself. He got saved when he was about 19 and and, and surrendered to preach, became an evangelist. And and his grandmother said, Walter Kay, what are you going to do when you start talking to smart folks and they ask you questions you don't have any answers for? He said, I don't know. First, he thought of that. He said, I don't know what I'll do. What should I do? His grandmother gave him some good advice. She said, Head straight to the cross, Walter Kate. He's preaching a revival for me, and we went out to this little old uh, mobile home and I met the most self righteous hypocrite I've ever talked to. Well, he thought he was fine, he's just fine. And while he was giving us this tirade about how how alright he was and how silly it was for us to even come out there. What he's doing that, old Walter Case started. He just took off for the cross. I'm gonna tell you something, I've never heard the story of redemption described like he did it. I mean, he brought tears to my eyes. And I looked over at that guy and he's just kind of going. And all of a sudden, as he painted what, that, what the gospel is about, that Jesus Christ crucified, buried and raised... And that gospel centered in the nature of God Himself. When He pictured that for Him, before whose eyes Christ was set forth crucified, it just melted Him. That's what you do with people who think they're all right because the cross says you're not all right. That there is something so basically wrong with all of us that Jesus Himself had to die. Now, the purpose of this sermon this morning was to try to elicit, first of all, a response of evangelism to help you to see because of the logos of this message that it meets us at our deepest need and the the pathos of the individual that that surely there's some of us here this morning who would respond to the gospel. To receive Christ as your Savior to make a new commitment of your life and to join, or to join this church. But there's a twofold twofold purpose in this sermon. The second is to try to help us, to try to identify and encourage those of us to share our faith. And there'll be some of you who'll need to come and do this. Place it right here. You can go back to your seat if you want to. Kneel and pray, whatever. And while they're coming to do that, there are others who are going to come and respond to the gospel in other ways. To join this church to rededicate himself to Christ, to give his heart to Christ. First time experience of salvation. And I'm going to lead us in prayer. Mark's going to lead our choir. You're going to respond. Let's pray. Father, now hear us now, Father, we pray and remove every hindrance, every barrier, every prevention so that we can do your will now as an individual and as a church. I pray this for Jesus' sake. Now, would you stand with me? Would you come? Come with this. Come here. Place this here. You go back to your seat if you want to while the choir sings.